Welcome to the final episode of Series 1 of CityWire Switzerland's Thanks I Quit podcast. I'm Fergus Horsfall and our guest today is Paul Donovan, Chief Economist of UBS Global Wealth Management. The series has covered finance workers with interesting career changes. However, this final episode flips that around and covers how the industry has changed during Paul's career, specifically in terms of attitude to LGBTQ plus issues. Paul, how has the banking world changed in this context? And thank you for joining me. To start well, the change has been, been fairly dramatic, I think. Um, but it's also, of course, reflecting the change in society, or at least in many societies as well, that uh, society has become more inclusive and banking finance generally has become more inclusive as part of that process. I mean, when I started uh, my career uh, over 30 years ago uh, as an intern in the city of London, there was absolutely no way I was going to be out in my career. That would have ended my career. There was no question. Um, and what you found was that there were very, very few queer individuals in the financial sector who were out. They tended to be people who essentially uh, you know, had, had reached the pinnacle of their career and felt that it, it, it couldn't negatively affect them. Uh, and so you had this environment which was very oppressive. It was, I mean, it was very stressful. You were constantly self-censoring yourself and editing yourself. I mean, it was, it was a really quite an unpleasant environment in the financial markets. But as time has gone on, the financial system, of course, is, is very, very dependent on what, as an economist, I would refer to as human capital. But, of course, what we mean is, is you know, we need skills. We need good quality people. That's what finance is built on. And uh, I think that that has helped to make finance actually quite uh, a leading part of the drive towards diversity and inclusion, because I think quite early on, the financial industry realized that actually, you know, we need people based on their skills, based on their talents and, and you know, irrelevant prejudices need to be pushed aside. And we need to create an environment where people are allowed to be themselves, you know, to, to bring their best possible game to work. Uh, and so what we've seen over the last 30 years is some really significant strides towards improving diversity and inclusion in general. But the LGBTQ plus community has, has specifically benefited from that. So it was clear to you then that you could not come out? It was, the, the, the signals around it were, were pretty clear. So um, I uh, interned at, at a, an organization, um, uh, not uh, UBS, a, a different bank. And I can remember being taken to one side by the desk assistant whilst I was an intern there and being told, uh, don't speak to that person. Uh, he's gay. Uh, so you shouldn't speak to him. And so, of course, the message is quite clear. If I come out of the closet, then no one's going to talk to me. Yeah, and I'm going to be some kind of sort of pariah on, on the trading floor uh, at that time. Of course, the assistant didn't realize that I'd have been rushing over to get the guy's phone number if only mobile phones had been invented at that time. Um, so uh, the, the, it wasn't necessarily that you would lose your job for being queer uh, in, in the late 80s or the early 90s, although that did happen. And of course, it, it was legal to happen in, in many, many countries. It was just that you would be shunned. You would not be part of the um, sort of informal networks that are so important. 
Paul, are there any particular people either in the banking industry or the corporate world or even just in society as a whole that you think really drove that change? I think it's a it's a complicated question because we we saw a change in society at large. Um, and that was driven by a number of factors, including uh, changing approaches after the AIDS pandemic, um, which was important. But you also saw a change in terms of, of culture and people like uh, Lord Cashman, Michael Cashman, uh, who is uh, a British politician, had been a British actor, very important in driving a change within culture, had the first uh, on-screen on gay kiss in British uh, television in a soap opera. Um, so that sort of thing changed the, the external environment. And then internally, I think uh, what changed within finance was a mix. So in the early stages, it was allies. And, and I think the role of allies, particularly for the LGBTQ plus community, is exceptionally important. People who were not LGBTQ plus themselves coming up and saying, actually, you know, I'm uh, a supporter of treating people equally. I'm a supporter of treating human beings as if they're human beings. Um, you know, fairly basic stuff like that. But, but by coming out and saying that's starting to change uh, the climate. And UBS had an allies program very early on. And I think, I hope, it made a difference to a lot of people. And then later on, you start to get role models uh, coming out. Now, that's been something which has been a li little bit less for my generation. I mean, there were some high prominent, uh, highly profiled uh, business leaders uh, like Lord Brown of BP, uh, who came out, although, of course, Lord Brown was forced out uh, by the tabloid media. But having been forced out, then did become uh, a very powerful advocate. But I often say that actually, for someone of my generation, uh, a lot of the people who've been really influential are you know, Generation Z, it's, it's, it's the younger generation who I look at and, and, and see their confidence and assurance and, and just how comfortable they are in themselves. And actually, it's the younger generation, I think, that has been very influential for people of my generation in being more open about who we are. So you think there are many people in their 40s, 50s and 60s who it's getting easier for because of teenagers? Essentially, yes. Um, you know, Generation Z is going to save the world one TikTok dance at a time. And, you know, that is what is happening, I think. We are seeing these uh, younger people come in. And, and, and I remark on this all the time. And I still catch myself um, self-censoring. And I know I shouldn't. And, and you know, I haven't been in the closet for years. But, you know, somebody asked me about, oh, what does your wife think? And, you know, my response tends to be, oh, I'm not married, not, uh, you know, I haven't found a man stupid enough to marry me yet. Um, and so that sort of self-censorship, I still catch myself doing it. And yet I see, you know, younger colleagues who are, you know, out and proud about who they are and, and very, very open in discussions. And, and that, for me, is a, it's, I mean, it's very positive. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to see it. But it's also a, a reminder that I, I need to learn. It's, it's reverse mentoring, I suppose, uh, in action. Do you sometimes find that um, younger queer people in the business world don't fully understand what it was like for you in your era and sort of presume it was easier than it was? I'm not sure that there's there's a, a belief that it was easier than it was. Um, I don't think that that necessarily is the case. I think that there 
there are now more and more attempts, actually particularly in the last few years, to improve uh, education within the, the wider queer community about the struggles. And of course, it's not just you know, the younger generation that need to learn their history. You know, uh, I, I may be getting on a bit, but I was not around for the Stonewall riots and learning the history of Stonewall or the Madison Society or uh, the Polari, the, the, the secret language of, of the gay male community in the UK in the, in the 1940s and the 1950s. You know, that sort of, of history is important. I think it is very important. I think that there is um, uh, perhaps certain areas where there's not necessarily a, a lack of understanding. It's, it's just it's quite difficult to comprehend. Uh, here in the UK, we we recently had a, a, a Channel Four documentary, uh, uh, pardon, Channel Four docudrama called "It's a Sin," which was about the um, HIV/AIDS pandemic in the 1980s and the way that people were treated. Um, and it's a terribly, terribly moving, terribly, terribly powerful drama series. I mean, it it really is worth uh, watching if you can. Uh, I've watched it once. I can never watch it again. I mean, it was it was traumatic because, again, for someone of my generation, had I come out in the 1980s and I didn't, but had I come out in the 1980s, the assumption would be that that was a death sentence because you know, that was the culture of the time. And just trying to convey that sense, I think, to a generation that has has thankfully moved on from that. I mean, it's very difficult. And of course, people of my generation don't necessarily want to go back and relive that that experience, which is why I think, you know, the, the role of culture in explaining this can be so important. Was the assumption be that it was a death sentence simply to be gay or to have HIV? Well, it was, uh, frankly, at the time, it was assumed that to have HIV was a death sentence, um, particularly in sort of the mid-1980s. We didn't start to get uh, retroviral drugs until um, uh, right at the end of the decade. But from that, it was very uh, a very easy leap to say, well, if you're gay, you will get HIV and that will lead to AIDS and then you will die. Um, and uh, you know, at a time when there was considerable ignorance, particularly around the mid 1980s, when um, you know, th this was being referred to as a sort of gay cancer and things like that, it was, you know, the association was very, very strong. And of course, this led to a lot of the social attitudes that came out of that. And after a, a period where there had been increased inclusion in the 1970s. In the 1980s, a lot of overtly uh, anti-queer legislation coming through here in the UK uh, horrendously. Uh, there was a, a government uh, censorship of, of the queer community. In the United States, you get a lot of persecution. And that comes out of the association of HIV and uh, essentially uh, gay men were, were the, the target at that time. So where are we now? And this comes in two parts. Firstly, where are we in general? And secondly, has the change in attitudes been uneven, perhaps especially in relation to transgender people? I think that society at large and business in particular have made a lot of advances in terms of, of diversity and inclusion. And the increase in acceptance, the increase in understanding of um, the queer community has been, uh, I think, very important. One of the things that is quite positive here is that there is 
sort of a virtuous cycle. One of the things about prejudice is that prejudice tends to occur against people you don't know. The moment you humanize prejudice, prejudice starts to crumble away because the whole principle of prejudice is that person is less than me or worse still, that person is less than human, which is also uh, an issue. Um, but as soon as you start knowing somebody who comes from a minority group who has a, a, a characteristic that is subject to prejudice, you realize that they're just like you, that they're, you know, they've got the same hopes and ambitions and flaws and everything else that it, all the rest of us have. And so that breaks down the prejudice very, very quickly. And we see this time and time again. So as we've got to a situation where more people are prepared to be out in the workplace, still not enough. I mean, it's still only about half of the working uh, population who are queer will be out in the workplace in a country like the UK. Um, but as that happens, you know, the person you're sitting next to at work or the person you know, you're sharing coffee with or having a conversation at the water cooler with, is gay, you realize that they're just like you and, and the barriers disappear uh, entirely. Um, and that I think is, is very, very powerful and it's becoming more and more widespread. So that I think is the, is the positive development that we are seeing. My concern is that because we are going through a period of, of dramatic economic change, when we get these episodes of economic change, that does tend to encourage prejudice. And because the LGBTQ plus community has been one of the areas which has come up very, very rapidly in the last few years uh, and started to, to get a lot more uh, inclusion, um, that I think is going to be one of the first uh, uh, targets in this sort of environment. And that has to be a risk. Um, and we look at some of the trends that are happening in the United States, for example, um, you know, there are some very worrying signs there. Uh, Russia is, it frankly, is, is quite uh, horrific in terms of the direction of travel, some of the prejudice that's come to in Hungary and so on. I mean, you know, these are areas where things are, are not always moving forwards. There are areas in the world where we're moving backwards as well. With regards to the trans community, I think this, again, is, is an example of the importance of having more contact, the importance of, of better understanding, um, that unfortunately you know, the trans community is, is a, an even smaller subsection of the LGBTQ plus community, which itself is a smaller subsection of society. And so the contact with, uh, you know, with trans men and trans women, uh, with, with people who are intersex, people who are non-binary, is less frequent. And that means that uh, you know, perhaps prejudice is, is better able to flourish. But generally, that prejudice is coming out of ignorance. And, and so it can be tackled. I think it is proving difficult to tackle. Um, uh, and it's, it's a, a bigger struggle in many ways than uh, LGBTQ plus rights more broadly have been. I think there are um, uh, uh, some positive signs here. There are some moves forwards. And again, you know, the, the inclusion of trans people uh, into mainstream culture and into social media, that is important because, you know, you may not know somebody who is trans, but you may follow somebody who is trans on YouTube, for example. Or, you know, you watch a television program like um, uh, the, the Netflix series Heartstopper, which features a trans actress playing a trans uh, woman or trans girl. And again, you, know, you, you 
get an emotional attachment to that, you realize that you know, trans women are just like any other woman and, and it's perfectly acceptable. So that sort of thing is chipping away uh, in a broader sense. But I still think that there is, is further to go. People in the financial sector tend to have um, a good educational background. Uh, they tend to be uh, urban based. They tend to be more cosmopolitan in terms of their outlook. That sort of thing is helping, I think, with a lot of the inclusion, but it's not perfect. Uh, there's no question of that. Uh, but I think both in terms of you know, the broader LGBTQ plus inclusion, but also specifically the issues for the trans community, you know, the financial sector is an area where there is some support. And how has um, your experience been with LGBT issues at UBS specifically? Well, it's uh, like any organization, it's, it's uh, evolved over time. Our Pride Network in uh, Switzerland celebrated its 20th anniversary uh, this year. I uh, have, since being out, I have I've had no uh, overt homophobia or anything like that, and in fact have, have been uh, very much welcomed in terms of, uh, of the, uh, the wider organization. I think that the culture of an organization like UBS is naturally very supportive. And, and I think that this is important in any organization. Having a box checking exercise from HR is not going to create an inclusive environment for, for any uh, uh, disadvantaged group. Whereas having a genuine culture where people will stand up to defend the, the equality of, of colleagues where people uh, will look to learn and look to understand, improve their understanding is very important. I think that leadership plays uh, a very important role in this. Now, one of the things that I think is, uh, is very important here is that you know, <laughs> we move away from sort of scattering rainbow glitter over the logo in the month of June and forgetting about everything you know, uh, the rest of the year. And this is, this is an area where I think their, UBS has provided uh, a lot of leadership to the organization as a whole, has built the culture. So, for example, um, uh, I wrote about in, in my book on, on labor market prejudice, UBS played a leading role in amicus briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court in the Windsor case, which was against Defense of Marriage Act, and in the Obergefell case, which was for same-sex marriage marriage equality. And, and UBS played a, a, a prominent role in filing amicus briefs in that. Back as far as 2015, UBS provided an enormous amount of support to me as, a, as an economist in those days in the investment bank to write a piece on the economics of marriage equality. And we were the only bank writing about this. It was, I think, the first bank even to come close to touching on this subject. And the number of colleagues who sent me emails or, or, or had conversations with me saying how proud they were that the bank felt that this was something it should be doing. And I think you know, the attitude from bank management was, of course, we're going to do this. Why wouldn't we do this? Um, but you know, it, it sort of reinforced that culture. But I think what is important in building culture, and this is something that I certainly experienced at UBS, is that on any diversity issue, uh, leadership, I think, you know, is not necessarily going to be from the board of, of directors, as it were, or the chief exec. Yes, absolutely, the, the, the principles need to come from there. But to, to understand the challenges faced by a community, uh, I often say, you know, 
what we need to see is is not you know leadership with a rousing speech from the podium but leadership is sitting at the back of the room listening to what other people have to say having a coffee with you know the the graduate trainee next to you and we had a an instance of this um uh, recently uh, with Zurich Pride um where Ralph Hammers our chief exec came along uh, to Zurich Pride and this wasn't sort of a drive by you know, you know Ralph turned up uh, uh, with his wife marched for four hours in you know 35 degree heat no rousing speech from the podium he spent his time talking to everyone who was marching in pride from UBS uh, talking to them about their careers about about their experiences being LGBTQ plus uh, at, at UBS and so on and for me that was that was a, a really really telling instance of genuine leadership in this area uh, looking to discover more about the community looking to discover about the issues of the community within finance within UBS and that's exactly what we need to see and that I have to say you know after 30 years uh, in the finance industry one does de develop a certain cynicism about life perhaps I mean it's inevitable but that for me was one of the the best examples of leadership in diversity and inclusion that I have seen. Corporate pride has been criticized by people saying they don't want to see a parade of banks and insurance companies at pride, but you've written in defense of it, Paul, and you in fact see it as a positive thing. I do view it as a positive. Um, and you know, the accusation is that companies are you know, here for the party, not for the protest. And there are companies like that. You know, there are companies where you know the the rainbow logo disappears on the first of July, where you know they're they're saying no, we support Pride, and then they support anti-LGBTQ plus politicians, you know, at the same time. So there's there's absolutely there are you know, areas which should be called out. Having said that, I think that uh, there are two areas where corporate involvement in Pride is 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 so, so important and where I think it actually needs to be front and center uh, uh, in the years ahead. The first is that we have to recognize that most people spend most of their adult lives working for companies. You know, we don't work in the voluntary sector. We don't work for government. Most people work for companies. And the corporate culture is something we do take home. So if you're in a corporate culture where your colleagues feel safe to be out and proud, then you are a lot less likely to be homophobic, not just in the workplace, but outside the workplace. And if you're less homophobic outside the workplace, you will influence your friends and your family and so on. And so we have to recognize that the culture within a company has a really important role to play in shaping the culture of society at large. And I think that's extremely important. And so having corporates um, uh, demonstrating their inclusivity is, I think, something which, which can really shape the wider society. The second thing is that, as I mentioned, with, with structural change in the economy coming, I think that there is a significant risk of rising prejudice coming through. This was the, the subject of my last book. It's, you know, it, it's something we've seen time and again in industrial revolutions. You get a lot of upheaval. People feel very disorientated, and they, they look for scapegoats to blame, scapegoat economics. Companies have not just a moral and a social issue, they have an economic argument against this as well. And I think companies are going to have to play a larger role in lobbying against prejudice coming out of political populism, scapegoat economics, and, and so forth. 
Um, now, that does mean that I think that on a number of uh, issues that can be subject to prejudice, including many LGBTQ plus issues, companies actually can't be neutral. And eventually the company has to take a stand because you can't be neutral on an issue of prejudice. Either you think people deserve equality or you think some people are worth less than others. Now, very clearly, I and frankly, the entire economics profession are on the side of equality. Companies ultimately want the right person in the right job at the right time. That's, that's you know, part of the profit motive. And I don't think there's anything wrong in using the profit motive to argue for diversity and inclusion. Frankly, I think you use every weapon in your arsenal to argue for diversity and inclusion. And the role of corporates in that, I think, is significant. So, yes, I think corporates should be in pride. I think we should call out companies that are being hypocritical. Absolutely. You know, they should be judged in the, the court of public opinion or or even worse, the court of Twitter, uh, and called out if they've got it wrong. Um, but the companies that are creating an inclusive culture that are fighting year round for a genuine, diverse and inclusive society should be welcomed with open arms. You have spoken about how economic upheaval can encourage discriminatory behaviour, including a specific story about how some of your relatives lost their jobs as dock workers in London and turned to fascism in the 1930s. Do you think that with high inflation, people talking about a cost of living crisis and continuing automation of jobs in the longer term, this could encourage more discrimination, including against LGBTQ plus people? In any period of economic upheaval, um, what you get is a rise of, of scapegoat economics because it's not actually necessarily about job losses because we won't get net over time job losses. Yes, some jobs will disappear, but new jobs will be created. You know, the role of a podcaster did not exist 10 years ago. This is a new role uh, and it's been created by the technological change. Um, so you get transition, you get change, but of course, not everyone can adapt to that change. And the, the critical issue here is actually less about employment income or, or uh, anything like that. It's more about social status. Some people see their social status falling as a result of structural change. And what's worse is they see their neighbor's social status going up. And in that, you say, well, it's not my fault. My, my social status is going down. It's not my fault I've lost my job or you know, my income has fallen. It must be the fault of that foreigner. It must be the fault of moral decline because gay men are allowed to marry. It must be uh, you know, the, the, the fault of immigration. Whatever it is, you find a group to blame. Because then, of course, you get the very reassuring and completely erroneous narrative that will take that group out of society and everything will go back to what it was. And so you get this nice, simple solution in a very, very complex world. Um, so, yes. I think that unfortunately, because of the social change that we are going to be going through, we're already going through, we will see the rise of scapegoat economics and prejudice politics. These are, you know, go hand in hand. Um, I think that companies can push back against this. I think individuals can push back against this. The optimistic case is as well that society has more weapons to push back against this overall. Um, you know, that uh, uh, groups that are targeted for prejudice can actually come together a lot more easily now than they could 20 or 30 years ago. You know, social media is, is 
often and rightly castigated for uh, feeding prejudice in society, for creating negative echo chambers and so on. And it certainly does do that for some groups, but it also allows people to connect. It also uh, brings different groups together. It means that, you know, if, if I can uh, quote from a, an old uh, UK sitcom, if you feel you are the only gay in the village, in you know, rural countryside, well, actually, you can find a network online and you can find people who you can have a, 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 a relationship with. You can you know, explain your fears and your hopes and you, know, you realize that you're not alone. Um, and with that, you can fight back against the prejudice. So, yes, I'm afraid to say prejudice. We can see it now. It is rising across various areas. Um, we're seeing this with, with anti-trans actions. We are seeing this with uh, you know, now a, a resistance to marriage equality in the United States, um, uh, possibly overturning Lawrence versus Texas, which you know, establishes the right for uh, you know, uh, queer people to, to have relations with one another. You know, this sort of thing is under threat. But at the same time, there is a far more... Um, powerful resistance to this than would have been possible 20 years ago. There are times when you look at the news, when you look at the, the reaction, and you can end up in a very dark and pessimistic place. One of the most depressing periods of my life was spent when I was researching for the book, looking at the US white supremacist movement and you know, how they've adapted technology to their own ends. And, and you know, it, it's, a, it's an awful demoralizing story to go through but there's also an awful amount of optimism and positivity whether it is through podcasts or youtube videos or other forms of social media bringing people together and on balance and perhaps a little unusually for an economist i err on the side of the optimistic there has been a lot of talk in financial markets about esg with the s meaning socially positive investing what does this look like in terms of the LGBTQ plus community? That's a, that's a very interesting question um, because there is a fundamental problem uh, for the LGBTQ plus community, for, for many groups which are, have, have uh, prejudiced characteristics, but for LGBTQ plus in particular, in that this can be uh, an invisible form of prejudice. Uh, that is to say that assessing how many LGBTQ plus people there are uh, in an organization or assessing a company's performance on that is actually quite difficult to do because people can and do disguise who they are. I mean, I spent many years in my career, um, you know, pre pretending to be straight. Um, and the consequence of that is still very negative because it's, it's very stressful to have to lie about who you are all the time. And so it affected my performance and it was a negative for me but I was in a culture where I felt I couldn't be out. Now, the problem is that you, you really do have a difficulty in, in getting data on invisible forms of prejudice. It's a little bit simplistic, but I would say essentially, if you share characteristics with other members of your family, you're more likely to be proud and public about those characteristics. So things like gender, uh, ethnicity, religion, people are, are, tend to be more visible about. But if you don't necessarily share characteristics with other members of your family, um, then one of the risks is that your family is prejudiced against you. And there are certain forms of disability, for example, neurodiversity, and of course, sexuality, 
where actually the the biggest sort of source of hatred may come from within your family. And for those characteristics, people are a lot more likely to be hidden. So it means that both in terms of assessing how people invest and uh, acting as an investor, it becomes a lot more difficult to try and get a handle on you know, the, the true method of, of inclusivity and is this company inclusive? Are they doing the right thing? It can be very, very difficult to get a handle on that. I think that if we look at LGBTQ plus people as investors, it is very clear that they need to think slightly differently from mainstream investors. Um, in many cases, they will have less job security. So uh, they may need to have more liquidity in their portfolio um, because you know, they don't have the same legal rights and protections that other people have. And there's a number of countries where, where that is the case. In fact, a majority of countries where that is the case. Um, they may need to think about their legacy. You know, how do you manage your legacy uh, if your marriage is never going to be recognized in the country that you're in or the marriage recognition is going to be taken away uh, from you? Uh, how do you manage legacy for your children? I mean, it's an important consideration. Um, longevity is also an issue. Um, you know, if you are a part of a lesbian couple, um, the chances of one of you living to over 100 is a great deal higher than if you're in a heterosexual couple um, because of, of the nature of, of uh, female longevity. So there's all sorts of complications here, and you can't assume that you follow the vanilla pattern. For investors generally, I think you know, the importance of, of diversity and inclusion is increasing. You absolutely want a company that is both diverse and inclusive in the way that it runs its business. You want a company that employs the right person in the right job at the right time, because that's how they're gonna maximize their efficiency, their productivity, their profitability. You also absolutely need uh, diversity in decision-making. You know, if everybody sat round the table is a white Anglo-Saxon middle-aged bald man, clearly not a demographic I've got anything against, but if that's all you've got sitting around the table, you've got a monoculture of thinking. So yes, you need queer people, you need ethnic diversity, you need gender diversity to be able to examine a problem from all possible angles, particularly when the world is going through massive upheaval and there's a great deal of change because you know, we're throwing up more opportunities and more problems and more risks in a period of structural upheaval. And if you've only got a monoculture of thinking, you're gonna miss the opportunities or worse, miss the risks. And so that's where the diversity side comes in. So I think investors are going to be demanding more and more evidence of the S part of ESG. My own view for what it is worth is that when I look at diversity and inclusion, I think diversity and inclusion today as an investment focus is probably where sustainability was about 15 years ago. It's just starting to really come up as an issue. People are, are asking companies not only about their own diversity and inclusion, but about the diversity and inclusion of their supply chains, for example. So this is really starting to move on the agenda. Um, but uh, I think that diversity and inclusion is likely to move up in terms of profile, probably even more rapidly than sustainability did, because it's also an integral part of sustainability. You know, one of the key solutions to the sustainability crisis is greater efficiency. Greater efficiency requires us to use technology, use our uh, skills to the maximum possible uh, benefit, which means right person, right job, right time. 
So if you have got a prejudiced society or a prejudiced uh, company, not only is it likely to underperform economically, it's also actually likely to underperform in terms of sustainability metrics because it's just not going to be as efficient as it could be. So this is all wrapped up together. And I think you know, this part of ESG is going to be moving very rapidly up um, uh, investors' priority lists over the next few years. I mean, as of right now today, do you think it's possible to create a kind of meaningful LGBTQ plus asset allocation? Do you say, I don't know, divest from Saudi Arabia or even if certain laws change Texas or who knows? I think so. It is. A, it's a complicated question. Um, I think that if we as with sustainability, outright exclusion is not necessarily the way to go. Um, because what you want to try and do is improve the situation in the future. So uh, a global employer may have uh, offices in countries which are hostile to or extremely hostile to LGBTQ plus people, but it provides sort of an embassy within those countries. So you know, talented queer workers know that they will be respected and treated properly within that uh, organization even if the world outside the walls is, is not great. Um, now, that's not ideal, but that's better than not being there. It's a lot better than not being there uh, for the individual's concern. So I think that there's, there's an aspect where exclusion is to be resisted. I think what companies can and should do is lobby. And, and uh, a charity that I uh, work for, um, the Open for Business Group, um, actually does this, that they use economic arguments to promote LGBTQ plus equality, and they orchestrate campaigns by companies to lobby governments for change to say, no, actually, equality is good for business, and, and this is where we want to go, because sometimes you know, a government may not listen to the moral arguments, but if you put it in terms of hard cash, they'll start to pay more attention. So, there are lots of ways, I think, where, where we can do this. So it shouldn't just be exclusion. I think you can start to look at companies' behavior. You can see, you know, do they have um, a, a pride network? You know, do they have uh, visibility? Do they lobby for, for queer rights? Is there support in terms of their um, benefits policies for same-sex uh, couples, even where not required? Um, that sort of approach can all be included uh, in an index. But of course, we still run into the problem that lots of people are not necessarily going to be out at work, even in uh, an accepting uh, company, if the society at large is not necessarily accepting. You know, I'm very happy at UBS to voluntarily you know, identify as a gay man. If I was living in Texas, I'm not sure I want that written down somewhere anymore, not with the way things are going there. So you can see why you would have perhaps a, a more cautious approach in certain areas where the political climate is different, even if you're working for a, a very inclusive company where you know you're safe in the corporate. So it is going to be a problem. But I think that there are some metrics we can use that, that help us move forwards. Things like the HRC index uh, from the United States, this, this does help. It's not perfect. Um, but we we can use indices which do help more or less uh, in terms of judging um, whether a company is is genuinely embracing diversity and inclusion or whether it's just partying for June and forgetting about the queer community the rest of the year. Do you think that there could be potential in the future, maybe 
you have people say boycotting government bonds from countries with specific laws because you know a, a government you can see it's on their statute book and maybe you're not depending on people identifying as gay you can see what they vote for i think there is there is a potential for for more coming from boycotts and we've seen this already and again you know the the role of social media the role of apps has increased the the potential power of boycotts um in the United States, you saw uh, a boycott of the fast food restaurant Chick-fil-A over their support for overtly anti-LGBTQ plus uh, organizations. And that has led to some change uh, in behavior. Debate how much has been changed, but there has been some change in behavior as a consequence. Um, we've seen uh, a number of apps come out which will give you some indication, you know, when you go shopping, you can scan a barcode and the app will say, well, you know, on the HRC human rights index and, and queer inclusion, this company scores this. So there are ways where this is coming through. Um, government boycotts um, are not necessarily happening just yet. In terms of government bonds, this may be something that comes through in the future. It may be something we start to get more of. Certainly, I think at the moment, uh, a lot of the uh, the action is very dependent upon a consumer retail level. And of course, a, a retail investor tends not to be you know, investing in uh, obscure government bonds of, of highly prejudiced company, uh, countries as a general rule. But we are seeing, for example, more and more issues around tourism and things like that, where um, uh, uh, there are boycotts of economies who are not going to visit that country because uh, it's not safe for me to go there. This is something that will be coming through, I think. What is the future of the LGBTQ plus community in banking? Are there certain steps that you would like to be taken still? Uh, I think that uh, we can always do more. I mean, one one can always say that. Um, I think that the uh, LGBTQ plus community um, has achieved a, a, a higher profile in recent years. As we've been discussing, I think the trans community still needs to have further improvements in terms of its profile. I would argue that you know, there are a, an increasing number of organizations like UBS that have really uh, embraced diversity and inclusion as a, a key part of the culture. Um, and, you know, where the focus is on the individual and the talent and the skills that they bring and not about irrelevant factors that have got nothing to do with their performance at work. Um, so I think that there is uh, a lot that is going on here. I would say um, uh, that as I look around the industry, I think that there are still perhaps a number of organizations where diversity and inclusion, and particularly queer diversity and inclusion, has not necessarily become embedded in the culture. It is still you know, the HR box checking exercise rather than something that you know, is, is absolutely ingrained in the culture and across all levels of the organization. You know, it's not just the chief exec saying this is what we must do. What you need is for the graduate trainee to turn around and say that's not an acceptable comment to be making. You know, and, and for that to be an embedded part of the culture is, is where we need to get to, uh, I think. Um, it is also, I think, the case that um, you, there is still a lack of um, LGBTQ plus, or at least openly LGBTQ plus representation at the very top of organizations. This is not just banking, this is across all organizations. Um, a report out recently suggested that you know, of the 
think it was the Fortune 2000, 0.5% of corporate directors are openly queer. Um, now, given that the queer community is 10% of the population, roughly speaking, perhaps a little bit higher now, um, to have 0.5% uh, of openly queer corporate directors is clearly an underrepresentation and symptomatic of problems. Um, this may resolve over time. You know, as, as my generation moves on and the younger generation uh, start to come up, um, you know, they have had uh, a, a more open and honest career uh, in terms of their sexuality. Maybe that representation improves. But I would like to see more representation in senior management if we could get it. The final question I had to ask you, Paul, is you've worked for a Swiss company for many years. Um, gay marriage in Switzerland actually only just became legal, I believe, this month, uh, July 2022. Uh, what's your perception of Switzerland for these kind of things been? How does it compare to the UK or maybe other areas? So I think, uh, I mean, Switzerland obviously was moving towards uh, marriage equality uh, earlier and then the uh, Swiss referendum process kicked in and uh, has had civil union uh, for uh, a long time. Um, uh, and indeed, I've had uh, friends and colleagues um, who have become civil partners uh, in, uh, over the years. Switzerland, I think, um, was a little slower to start than, than the UK. I think that much is clear, um, uh, but has moved in recent years, I think, quite quickly in um, embracing you know, the values of diversity and inclusion, particularly around uh, sexuality. Um, I think that um the momentum is is definitely positive um the the zurich pride which i attended this year was uh, a remarkably joyous occasion uh, and uh, very very welcoming not just you know for the participants who obviously you know are all members of the same community and and the allies but actually just walking along the streets and and people sort of leaning out of windows and support uh, uh, across the community and it was very very heartening to see um, so I think that whilst perhaps Switzerland has been a little bit later, and it's probably still a little bit uh, behind a, a country like the UK in terms of, of, of aspects, it has made a great deal of progress. And of course, no country is, is perfect. The failure of the UK government to um, uh, uh, accelerate its, its promised uh, ban on conversion therapy, which is effectively a form of psychological torture, um, is is reprehensible and you know these things still need to be pushed here uh it's always the same when we're talking about fighting against prejudice and and discrimination it's an ongoing battle but i'm i'm delighted to see that uh, switzerland has made as much progress as it has and has embraced um uh, marriage equality this year thank you paul donovan for discussing the dramatic changes in attitudes towards lgbtq plus people within banking. This is the final episode of the first series of CityWire Switzerland's Thanks I Quit podcast. Re-listen to our previous episodes from the series to hear veterans of the scene such as Klaus Velashoff and Dirk Klee discuss their careers and look out for new podcast content from us in the future. Thanks for listening.